Alright, if you haven't been with us on Sunday mornings in the almost the past year, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together as a church on Sunday mornings. Today, we have made our way to Mark chapter 13, and so I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Keep your place there in your Bible. Now, we're going tr- to try to cover this entire chapter today. That means we have got a lot of work to do, and we need to move fast. So let's go to the Lord, and let's ask God to meet with us in His Word. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we come to You now and we just proclaim over this time that vain is the strength of man, vain is the wisdom of man, vain are the works of man, but mighty is Your Spirit, Lord. Mighty is Your power toward us who believe Your exceedingly great power. And Lord, we ask for it, God. We ask for You to work among us as we gather in Your name, Lord, that that we would all experience the power of Your Word today. Lord Jesus, let us meet with You in this book that You have given us. And we ask, Lord, that You would carve out a moment, Lord, that You would open up a door for Your Word. God, we ask that You would drive out distractions of the mind, Lord, things that would cause us to be cold to Your Word. We ask that You would drive them far from us, Lord, and that You would arrest our attention, Lord. Help us to linger over Your words, Lord Jesus, as Your church, as Your people. And Father, I just ask You, Lord, that You would help me, God, to to proclaim Your words with Your strength, Lord. And I ask You, God, to do just what my brother prayed earlier, Lord, that You would put a guard over my mouth and that You would help me to speak Your words. God, we pray for Your church. We as Your church today, we pray, God, that You would help us to hear Your words. God, help us to hear Your words like a Berean. Help us to be eager people, ready to hear Your words taught to us, God. And help us to be a wise people, Lord, that test everything that we ever hear. By the Word of God, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We ask You to bless this time in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alright, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to say a few things about this, and we're not going to read this entire chapter, which we would usually do at the beginning. We're going to let this chapter unfold as we walk through this together. But let me say a few things first. First, this... This particular chapter falls in a genre of literature in the Bible known as apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic literature. Now, another word for that is this is biblical prophecy. Okay, This is just one of the ways where the Bible is unlike any other book. And what I mean by that is unlike any other book, the Bible actually predicts future events. Now, there's abundant evidence for this in the Scriptures. Many of these prophecies have already been fulfilled. And so we're about to read biblical prophecy today. And what that means, these are the recorded words of the God that declares the end from the beginning. He tells us things that are going to happen before they happen and then they happen according to His Word with vivid detail, 100% accuracy. This book is like no other. And so we're going to dive in today specifically to what the Bible teaches about the very end. Now, a word for this is biblical eschatology. This is a study of the last things, the very last things that are going to happen. All right? And our passage today, this is going to be Jesus' teaching on the last things. Now, I want to give you a few warnings here. At this point, in this area, in Christian doctrine, you just need to be aware of things. That there is very little disagreement among the true church and biblical churches regarding the details of the last things. Okay, People will fall all over the map regarding the details. 
But I want to make no mistake about this. The main event, the main point, the main event of the last things, everyone lines up on it. Here's what I want to drive in. The main event at the very end. All true Christians believe that Jesus Christ will visibly and bodily return to this earth at the very end. He's coming back. The one that we love, the one that died for us, the one who came out of the tomb, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and sits now on His holy throne. He's coming back. And we believe this. This is the main event. There is no deviation regarding the return of Christ in the Christian church. But people fall a lot of different places regarding the details. And so, how do we respond to that? I, would ju- I want to encourage you to do this. That today, we as a church, that we would approach the details of this passage and passages like this with humility. With humility. And that we would approach the main point, the main event of the end of history with unthinkable boldness. Unmovable about the return of Christ. Humility and boldness. Humility towards the details and boldness, boldness toward the main event. That sound good? Alright, here's the outline that we're going to go off of. I'll give it to you at the beginning. The outline that we're going to go off of is this. I believe that verses 5 through 13 are describing, of Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, I believe that they are describing the present age, the entire church age, okay? Including the time that you're living in right now. And I also believe that verses 14 to the end of the chapter, verse 37, are future oriented. Now, the reason I tell you that is not everyone agrees with me, okay? And I want to be upfront with you about that, that I'm giving you what I believe that the Scriptures teach. Not everyone agrees with me, so I encourage you to be a Berean. Go search these things out for yourself. Remember, humility to the details and boldness to the main event. Alright, one final warning before we start walking through this passage. This goes for any time you approach biblical prophecy. Here's a warning. Don't ever get sidetracked from the main points. Don't ever get sidetracked from the main points into the details of biblical prophecy. And here's what I mean. The main point of this passage that we're going to look at today is not to instruct you about apocalyptic events at the end of the world. That is not the main point. The main point of this particular passage is to produce in the church a readiness to meet Jesus Christ. He gives us information that it would change your life in the present tense. And I would just give you a a few reasons to highlight this. The main point of this passage, notice the repetition of the commandments, the imperatives in Mark chapter 13. Verse 9, Jesus says this. Verse 9, be on guard. Same thing, verse 23, be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. You notice the repetition here. And then in verse 37, he says, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so we take from this, the main point of this passage, we want to drive this like a bus through this passage. That The main point is that your life would line up to the last things. Not that you would know a few things about what the Bible teaches at the end. You understand what I'm saying, right? This is meant to change the way you live, not just to inform you and, and satisfy your curiosity. So don't get bogged down in the details. You know that you are responding wrongly to biblical prophecy, including this, if you become a prophecy nut. And what I mean by that is the wrong way to respond to this passage and others like it 
as you've seen this, right? You got boatloads of Bible charts and end times charts, and you got names for the Antichrist and five different doomsday scenarios. That's the prophecy nut. Okay? That's the wrong way to respond to this passage. That's not what it's intended to do. We just read the repetition of those verses. It's intended to produce readiness in the disciple to meet Christ. Alright? This is the teaching of Acts chapter 1, verse 7. The last things are to produce a lifestyle marked by obedience to Jesus and to His mission. Listen to Acts 1, 7 and 8. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this passage is called the Olivet Discourse, and we see it in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke 21. All three Gospels slide it in right before Jesus goes to His Last Supper and to His crucifixion. So it couldn't show up in a more important place in all three Gospels. And what Acts 1 does, and what Mark 13 does, is it reminds us that the point of the Olivet Discourse, it's not meant to produce prophecy nuts. It's meant to produce Gospel preachers. That's how you know when you heard this rightly. When you walk out of this room and you're ready to preach the Gospel of Jesus until He comes. That's the point of the passage. Stay awake. You'll notice the title of the message today is Stay Awake. This is a point of the passage. The point is not that you would know information about the end. Verse 13 says the point is that you would persevere to the end. Not that you would know a few details. Okay. At this point in Mark's Gospel, if you're just reading through, okay, at this point, Jesus has been in Jerusalem in the final week of His life and since Mark chapter 11. He is just days away. His earthly ministry is coming to a close. It's fading to completion. And He's just days away from this cross. And He slips in this lesson for us to consider the manner of life that we're living in light of His return. And what that means for us as His church, as His people, is right now we ought to pull up a chair and ask God to reveal what kind of life that we're supposed to be living in light of the last things. Alright, let's begin walking through this passage we got a lot of work to do, so we're going to cover a lot of this fast. If you have questions, please feel free to ask me about them when we're done or sometime even after today. Verse 1 and 2. Let's begin to work through the passage. Verse 1 and 2 says this, And he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And our passage begins as Jesus and His disciples are walking out of the temple in Jerusalem. And these disciples are impressed with the beauty of this structure. And history confirms that this building is an architectural marvel. Okay? And I mean that in every sense of the word. By the time of Jesus, this Temple compound, it, it encompassed the footprint of it was about one-sixth of the entire city. It was massive in its footprint. But then, listen to this. This blew my mind with the construction background. The Jewish historian Josephus records that the stones in this temple were staggering in size. Listen to the size. Solid stones, 50 feet long by 16 feet tall 
by 24 feet deep, over a million pounds. And I'm sitting there thinking about this, and there are other resources that say the same thing of these massive stones. And even today with modern construction equipment, I have no idea how they place things this big. I just don't know. It blows my mind. Just like it did them. They're looking at Jesus and say, what, ma- what massive stones? And they're blown away by this structure. Very impressed by the structure. But Jesus turns to them and says, this thing is going to be completely destroyed. Not a stone will be left upon another. Those massive stones that you see, they're going to be t- tore down. Not a stone left standing. And so these words, these are the, this is the prophecy of Jesus. He is prophesying that this temple will be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to come down. And this is a judgment of God on the Jewish nation, on the Jewish people. And you'll remember, even in Mark, starting in, in chapter 11, you remember Jesus rides into Jerusalem on His donkey. He announces that yes, He is in fact the true Messiah over Israel. And then the very next picture you see is He walks into the temple and He begins to pronounce judgment on this temple. What was supposed to be, you remember this in Mark chapter 11, what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus said it had turned into a den of robbers. And so this temple was not fulfilling what it was intended for. And so God is judging this people. God is judging this whole false Jewish system. And Jesus says that this magnificent structure that was the centerpiece of the entire Jewish religion was going to be torn to the ground. Now, try to think like a first century Jewish person. I know you're not, so you've got to try hard. Okay? The centerpiece of your nation, Jesus just said, was going to come to the ground and there wasn't going to be a stone left upon another. This would have been staggering news to a first century Jew. And this even hit the disciples in a very specific way. I want to show that to you. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. It says, As He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked Him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So the setting has changed at this point. We are now on the Mount of Olives. We were on the temple. Okay? Or coming out of the temple. Most commentators assume that the disciples uh, in silence walked for about an hour from the temple to the Mount of Olives. Just this, this prophecy of Jesus simmer, simmering on their mind. And then we see here four of them is simmering to the point where they have to get a clarification. And four of them go to Jesus in private. Peter, James, and John, and then Andrew is added here. And they ask Jesus for a clarification. They ask Him a question. Okay? And I want you to, you have to understand what's going on here. So listen in closely for the next few moments. These disciples were tremendously confused. They heard Jesus rightly that the temple was going to be destroyed, but they had some bad connections going on in their mind. They were tremendously confused. In their worldview, the temple being destroyed only meant one thing for these disciples. And they immediately connected it with with the end of the world and the immediate establishment of the messianic reign of Jesus. Alright? And we know that. We know that they connected it that way from the same questions that they ask in Matthew's Gospel. We're going to read that in a second. And so they come with this question of Jesus. I want this phrase to be in your mind. They have overheated eschatology. They're coming in too hot. They're not understanding the last things rightly. They have full of zeal and they get an A for zeal. But they get a big fat F for interpreting the Scriptures rightly. They're overheated. They're coming in too hot. 
They're expecting the immediate end and the immediate kingdom of God. Matthew's version gives us the question they ask in more detail. Listen to this. Matthew 24, verse 3. He says, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there you have it. They clearly have in mind what Jesus just said about the temple equaled the end of the age. And so they're coming and they're asking for a clarifier here. And I want you to notice that their question basically had two parts. They asked Jesus for a when and they asked Jesus for a sign. Okay? When are these things going to happen? When is the end going to come? And what's going to be the sign that they're about to be accomplished? The sign of the end. When and the sign. And what you're going to see is that Jesus' response to that twofold question, this is going to frame up the rest of this prophecy. And you see that in your outline. He's going to touch both of those. He's going to talk to them about the sign, and then He's going to talk to them about the wind at the very end. Alright? But the first thing that Jesus is about to do is He's about to break this connection in their mind that they're making between the temple destruction and the immediate end and the setting up of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus does not want His disciples to confuse these two events. It leads to overheated eschatology. This is still happening today in a flavor of Christianity known as dominion theology that teaches that the church's job is to set up the kingdom of Jesus on this planet. That is a departure. He's breaking the connection here. He's about to show us the signs of the present age. And according to Jesus, this world is not going to get better and better, and the church is not going to take over the earth. We're to expect something entirely different. So he's about to snap that connection. Luke's gospel makes it very clear that there's going to be a big time gap between the temple destruction and the end of the age and the return of Christ. I want to read this to you. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Listen to this. It says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be left captive among all nations. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to the rest of the verse. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that is very helpful for this reason. Because it just gave us a phrase to describe what point we're at in the last things. That, that phrase, that gap that we're in between temple destruction and the end, and that verse is called the times of the Gentiles. This is, this is where we are in the present age. And then listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 25. This time, the times of the Gentiles, this is how long it's going to last. Romans eleven twenty-five says this. This period will exist until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And after that happens, comes the end of the age. So Jesus is snapping this connection. And there's going to be significant time that's going to pass between temple destruction and the end of the age. In verses 5-13, through 13, Jesus is going to tell us that the end is not going to come immediately. He's going to tell those disciples that He's in this conversation with, the end's not coming as immediately as you think it is. He's snapping the connection there. Now we're about to read this, 5-13, through 13, and these things in these following verses... This is what the disciples of Jesus are to expect in every generation of the church age. This is us. He's talking to them, but He's talking to us through them. This is the present age. Verse 5 through verse 13. It says this, And Jesus began to say to them, 
See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in My name saying, I am He. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Alright, keep your eyes on these verses. Verse 7. Verse 7. Jesus plainly tells us that the events that He just described here are not the end. They're not the end. These are not the end. Then in the very next verse, verse 8, He says that these same events, these are only the beginning. They're not the end. They're only the beginning. This is how He's snapping that connection that they're making in their mind. There's going to be some time. He's he's teaching His disciples there's going to be some significant time that's going to pass between the beginning and the end. This gap that we're in, the times of the Gentiles, the times between the beginning and the end, this gap, according to these verses, this gap is going to be... It's going to be marked by the repetitive suffering of the disciples of Jesus. And you see that here. There's going to be deception and and wars and earthquakes and famines and persecution. And we're going to suffer. And this is not the end. This is the beginning. This is the mark of this age. Now, you think about how shocking that that would have been. Just that statement would have been to these disciples. Remember, they're sitting there and they're sitting on overheated eschatology. And they're ready for the immediate inauguration for the world rule of King Jesus where He rules over all that He's made and every nation bows down to Him as King. They're ready for that immediately. Which means this. They are prepared for their immediate future to be marked by comfort and ease because the entire world is about to bow down to Jesus. And so that news would have hit them staggering because Jesus said this... Your immediate future is not going to be marked by comfort and ease. Your immediate future is about to be marked by suffering. This would have been a curveball. He's snapping that connection and he's changing the way that they think. So we're going to use verse 5 through 13 as like a panorama of human history. This is the present age, and we're going to learn from Jesus what we are to expect on this planet. Now, as we walk through this chapter, I'm going to pull out several applications. I'm going to do it straight from the text. Okay, I'm going to call them lessons from the last days. And all I'm doing is just pulling out a few verses and making applications. And here's the first one. Lesson number one from the last days is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And you see this in verses 5 and 6. 
Now, think about this. In an area like this, there, there, there's almost no other area with more deception than the last things. This, in, in, in the history of Christianity, there's false teachers piled to the sky that, that taught false things about the coming of Christ. False dates. False predictions. The number one rule and the first thing that Jesus tells His disciples regarding the last things is do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. And this is to land on us. We need to hear this with fresh ears in the present age. We are not to be deceived. We are not to be led astray. And what this means, this panorama, is that disciples of Jesus in every generation, they will be exposed to being led astray by false teachers. We are to expect this. This will happen until Jesus comes. We can expect error to get worse and worse. False doctrine to get worse and worse. It's going to happen. Our job is to be on guard and to not be deceived. There will be many who come in the name of Jesus. And you see that in 5 and 6. In the name of Jesus, but they have nothing to do with the real Jesus. They're imposters. And there's going to be many people who are deceived by these deceivers. And we can expect this to happen until the very end. A parade of false prophets, false teachers. It's going to get worse and worse, and it's going to go to the very end. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, Christian, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What that means is that there are many figures that are going to rise up that have nothing to do with Jesus before the final Antichrist appears. This is the mark of the age. And what this means for us is when we flick on TBN and we see this prosperity preacher saying, throw down a bunch of money and you're going to be rich and you're going to be saved. That ought not to surprise you very much. This is the mark of the present age. Our job is to be on guard. There will never be a moment on this planet where the church is not exposed to false doctrine. We must be on guard and not be deceived. Not be led astray. Lesson number two is this for the last days. Lesson number two, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we get this from verses 6 and 7. Actually, verses 7 and 8. Don't be afraid. And what are you talking about? Jesus says there are going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. Matthew's Gospel throws a few other things in there like plagues. These things are going to happen until the end. We must not be afraid. We have to remember biblical theology. You say, what do you mean? We have to remember Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning. Okay, Genesis chapter 3 teaches that God cursed the entire creation because of our sin. The entire creation is cursed because of sin. This is our fault. And so every day you wake up in this world, you wake up in the midst of an earth, in the midst of a planet, it's been cursed by God. Okay? This means you, you live on a dangerous planet. This is not going to change until Jesus comes. Now, we can expect humanity and the world to progress in some ways. Maybe we stamp out a few diseases. Maybe we come up with all kinds of technological advances. But you see from Jesus' words that mankind, humanity, this creation, it will never advance morally, 
It will never advance spiritually. This age will be marked by wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. It's going to happen. These things are not to produce fear in us because our home is not here. This world is going up like a torch. Our, our home is not here. If these things, historically, if you're a disciple of Jesus, and these, when you hear about world events like this, whether they be wars or natural disasters or, 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 or school shootings, and they shake you up to the point of producing fear and anxiety, you're not hearing Jesus rightly. You're not hearing Him rightly. Our world, our, this is not our home. We are to expect no security here. None. Listen to, to 1 Corinthians 7.31. Says the present form of this world is passing away. That's what's happening right now to this cursed creation. The present form, life as you know it, it's going to roll up into eternity. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. Listen to listen to Second Corinthians five one. This is the response of the disciples of Jesus. Second Corinthians five one. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Our security is wrapped up in eternal things, in Christ Jesus, in the heavenly places. That's our security. That's our anchor. Now, these things actually should produce the opposite in us of anxiety and fear. In verse 8, I want you to notice that Jesus calls these troubles birth pains. He calls them birth pains. He compares these things, the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the earthquakes. He compares these things to a woman giving labor. woman giving labor. And what that draws is a beautiful picture for us. That the sufferings that we experience in this present age, that we must endure as the disciples of Jesus, they're giving birth to something glorious. God is bringing about something glorious from the suffering of His disciples. In fact, these same exact Greek words used in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, to tell us that through these sufferings, an entirely new world is being brought forth and birthed for us. Romans 8 also says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the posture of the disciple in the midst of a chaotic world, our security is not here. we got glory coming our way. Our security and our home is wrapped up in eternal things. And this world is passing away and it's going, to, it's going to burn up. And Jesus plainly teaches here. He plainly teaches here that contemporary tragedies like wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and tsunamis and hurricanes, He clearly teaches here that these are not the end. They're not the end. Every time something like this happens, doomsday, doomsday scenarios go flying across media. Jesus said, these things are not the end. Pay attention. These things are not the end. They're the birth pains. And our posture is to remember and to believe that history is in the sovereign control of our God. And we are unshaken by contemporary events because He rules all things. And He's bringing about a glorious new creation. Lesson number three for the last days from this passage is don't be silenced. Don't be silenced. And we see this in verses 9 through verse 13. Verse 9 through verse 13. Don't be silenced. And the point of these verses is to remind you as a disciple of Jesus, you are to prepare 
to be a persecuted, Holy Spirit-empowered gospel preacher until Jesus comes, until the very end. This is to be the mark of this age. And Jesus tells us in these verses in vivid detail that it will never be easy to follow Christ in this world. We are to expect persecution. We are to expect persecution. Whether it comes from government leaders or religious leaders in verse 9, or whether it comes from family members in verse 12, mamas and daddies and children, we are to expect persecution until He comes. Until He comes. This is what Jesus is preparing us to do. To preach the Gospel in every season of life. Verse 10, it lays out our mission. This is our mission mandate in verse 10. Jesus says this, The Gospel, it must be preached. It must first be proclaimed to all nations. Highlight in your mind the word must. Okay, This is not a maybe thing. Okay, This is a sealed for sure thing that this gospel must be proclaimed to all nations first. Okay, Matthew adds the phrase, and then the end will come. Alright? This reminds us of God's sovereign mission in this world. He just told us. Now, it'd be one thing if that verse was sandwiched around a lot of a lot of other language like we're going to take over the world. But that verse 10 is sandwiched between persecution. And verse 10 says that it's going to happen. Verses 9 and verse 11 through 13 tell you there's all kind of trouble around this thing. And so we conclude this, that God, He will fulfill His mission, His all-nations mission through His church in the midst of a hostile world. This world doesn't want the Gospel. We are never to expect a point in human history that the offense of the Gospel will be removed. It will always stand. But what these verses teach, and this is a glorious, glorious comfort to disciples. These verses teach that persecution will never, ultimately, it will never stop the advance of the gospel. This gospel must first be proclaimed in all the world. So the lesson is this. Disciples of Jesus in the last days, don't be silenced. Don't be silenced. Our responsibility is to get the gospel to the nations, no matter the cost, in every season of life. In every season of life. In your 20s, gospel to the nations. In your 30s, gospel to the nations. Fast forward to your 80s, gospel to the nations. Every single season of your life. We don't go through four or five years of life where we check out of the mission of Jesus. Every single season, on mission with Christ till the very end. And then the end will come. This is last day lessons according to Jesus. Listen to this quote from George Eldon Ladd. He says, how close are we to the accomplishment of the task? Which countries have been evangelized and which have not? How close are we to the end? I answer, I do not know. God alone knows. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task, our responsibility is to complete the work. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Every season, the church of Jesus is on mission, even in the hostile world. And as we move out in obedience to Christ, preaching the gospel to every nation on the planet, we are to expect, according to these verses, we are to trust and to expect 
empowerment from God the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural, supernatural mission. We cannot do this in our own strength. So God solved the problem. And He said, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to clothe you with power. You're going to have supernatural, unthinkable power to proclaim My Gospel, even in the midst of persecution. Listen to Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I just want to ask anybody here, have you exhausted that promise from God? Have you exhausted the power of God in your life to proclaim Jesus in every season among all the nations? None among us have exhausted this. There is, there is plenty more for us to trust God and to ask God for help. And we are, we are to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to preach this gospel until the end. I want you to notice something here. Verse 13 Verse 13 tells us that we are hated by all, and then it adds this phrase, for, for His namesake. For His namesake. That means that they hate us because of Jesus. They associate us with Jesus. For His namesake they hate us. So hold that there, and then let's bring another thought straight into that. Persecution. What's the point of persecution? It's the silence witness. It's the silence proclamation. That's the whole entire point. Okay? And what this means is that the trigger for persecution is always what? It's always evangelism. Okay, you're not, you're not getting persecuted if you're not evangelizing. There's no point of persecution if you're already silent. And so what this means is that they hate us for Jesus' sake. And what links us to Jesus in a hostile world is our involvement in His mission. This is, this is how they associate us with Christ. They hate us for Jesus' sake because we preach His gospel. And what I mean is this, for, for disciples, if you want an easy life, if you want an easy life in your years on this planet, it's very simple. Never talk about the gospel. Never talk about the gospel. The whole point of persecution is to silence. But we must not be silenced. So gospel preaching will always draw persecution over the long haul. We can expect this till the end. But it also, in verse 9, it's also the point of persecution. And you see this in verse 9. God has this thing rigged. Every single corner, He's got it rigged. In verse 9, disciples are delivered up for what reason? To bear witness. They're, they're brought forward in God's sovereign plan to bear witness for Christ. Uh, evangelism triggers persecution, and evangelism is the point of persecution. And so disciples of Jesus, as we approach the end and to the very end, we're supposed to interpret any backlash and any persecution that we receive, we're supposed to interpret it as a gospel opportunity. That we are brought, even brought before governors, even brought before kings to, to bear witness for Christ. It's not an opportunity for you to complain when somebody hammers you about believing the gospel. You're to expect this. You're to expect it. It's a gospel opportunity. In your life. Do not be silenced. I want you to notice one final thing before we move past this. In the midst of persecution, we are promised the power of the Holy Spirit. Agree with that? We're promised the Holy Spirit's power. We are not promised that we will escape earthly death. Okay? In fact, we're promised the exact opposite. Some will die for Christ. And this is part of God's plan. It has been from the very beginning. There will be martyrs that lay down their life for Christ. You see this played out in the book of Acts. 
In Acts 1.8, you can remember this very easy. In Acts 1.8, Jesus gives them the mission that they are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Flip those numbers around. Acts 8.1, they actually don't leave Jerusalem and head toward the nations until Acts 8.1. Okay, so Acts 1.8, Acts 8.1. You know what was the trigger to that all-nations mission? The first Christian martyr gave his life at the end of Acts chapter 11. This has always worked this way. Some will give their life for Christ and the mission will continue. And we are to expect this to the very end. This is the same way in the first century church under the persecution of the emperor Nero. This is terrible. One historian of the church writes this. He says, Gruesome acts against Christians were committed by Nero. Only a satanic inspired imagination could have conceived what he did to Christians. Some Christians were sewn inside skins of wild animals and then thrown alive to wild beasts and ripped to shreds. Others were tied to poles and lit on fire like human torches just to provide light for Nero's dinner parties. Then he says, This cruel persecution, it spread throughout the Roman Empire, but it only succeeded in strengthening Christians. It will always work like that. It will always work like that. They can persecute, the world can persecute us, but it cannot stamp out the advance of the gospel. It can't. It can't. This is also true in the first several hundred years of, of the early church. I want to introduce you to someone named Ignatius of Antioch. He was the overseer of the church at Antioch around 110 AD. Okay? This man was put in jail for Jesus for preaching the gospel. Then he writes this letter back to his church and he basically begs his church, don't do anything to deliver me from martyrdom. Okay, Don't do anything to deliver me from martyrdom. Now I want you to imagine someone you love and you get a letter like that back. I thought about this. If I fast forward 20, 30 years of my life trying to imagine my son getting saved and going to the nations with, with the gospel and him writing me a letter from Pakistan or Iran and saying, Daddy, I'm in jail for Christ and I don't want you to do anything to deliver me from this persecution that I'm receiving. I don't want you to do anything to deliver me. I want you to imagine the gut-wrenching things that you would feel. The gut-wrenching that He's my Son and I don't want my Son to be harmed in any way, but I'm a disciple of Jesus. And something about that is glorious. Glorious. This is what we long for for the people we love. In this letter that he writes to this church, he says, he says this, Now I begin to be a disciple of Christ. I care nothing for visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. He says, let fire in the cross. Let the companies of wild beasts. Let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs. Let the grinding of the body and all the hatred of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. It's always been like this. That is an example of Holy Spirit boldness. Holy Spirit empowered gospel preaching. In the midst of persecution, you see this over and over in church history. Spirit empowered bold martyrs for Christ. In fact, there's a tagline that came out of the first century church in North Africa, and they said the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because they tried to kill them all, but all they did was spread the gospel all across North Africa. We are to expect this to the very end. Church historians tell us that there have been more martyrs in the last century than any other century in Christian history. Today, in the times that we live in. In fact, Russell Moore, 
uh, got on national news just a couple of weeks ago in response to the ISIS beheadings of the Christians when they lined them all up in a row and cut their head off. And he said this, and this is the truth of this passage. He said, you can behead Christians, but you can never behead the body of Christ. You can cut them to the ground all you want, but you're not going to stop the advance of the gospel. The mission of Jesus will continue in the midst of persecution until the very end. And we can expect to suffer for preaching the gospel. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that we have available to preach this gospel to the very end. False converts will crumble under the weight of this persecution. And this is why you have this phrase in verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That is not a verse telling you you have to earn your salvation. That's a verse telling you that evidence that you are saved, that you are made new in Jesus, that you have righteousness, that you have the Holy Spirit, that you are a new creation, is that you will persevere to the end. This is the promise for all true Christians. This is the promise. So these are the marks of the present age. This is what we are to expect to encounter until the very end. And then in verses 14 through 27, Jesus transitions to the sign of the end. So we're no longer in the present age. We're transitioning now to the sign of the end. And so this Jesus is beginning to answer the last half of their question. Okay? What's the sign of the end? Listen to verse 14 through verse 27. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Alright, lesson number four for the last days is don't be ignorant regarding the abomination of desolation. And we see this in verses 14 through verse 23. Verse 14 through verse 23. Now, this phrase that Jesus uses, abomination of desolation, what He's doing when He says that is He reaches back and He grabs a phrase from the prophet Daniel. This is not a new phrase of Jesus. Daniel mentions the abomination of desolation four times. Jot down these references. Daniel 8.13 Daniel 9.27 
Daniel 11.31 and Daniel 12.17. So Jesus at this point basically says this. He says, you know that abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about? That's going to be the trigger. That's going to be the trigger. The abomination is going to be the cause. Think about it like this. And the desolation is going to be the effect. The the abomination is the cause. The desolation is going to be the effect. And this will be an act of sacrilege and blasphemy. So appalling that it brings unparalleled tribulation. It's going to trigger what's referred to as the tribulation in this passage. This is the trigger. Okay, We're, We're pressing through the present age and then all of a sudden there's a trigger. And this is it. So what will it be? What will be what will this abomination of desolation be? Okay? This is where you have to get very careful in approaching prophecy and trying to marry it to current events. Okay? That is not our job. Our job is to rightly divide the word of God. What will this abomination of desolation be? In verse 14, you're just going to approach this a simple, simple way. It tells us that it will be a person standing where he ought not be. Okay? Matthew adds this, that he'll be standing in the holy place. So, so far we have a person, and he's standing in the holy place. And then Luke adds that this abomination of desolation will be accompanied by armies surrounding Jerusalem. So put all those together. This will be a man, he will be a ruler. This ruler will attack Jerusalem, and he will take it over. This ruler will go into the holy place and defile it. And, and perform an act of blasphemy. And this will be the trigger. So the lesson is this. Don't be ignorant about the abomination of desolation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 mentions this ruler. Gives us more details. And names him the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There have been many types and figures that Christians have said, maybe this, is, maybe this is Him. Maybe this is the Antichrist. Okay, And I told you before that I approach these as future-oriented. Especially from that passage in 2 Thessalonians, I think that we can conclude that there will be one final, supreme, last, evil ruler. I think we can conclude that. His name will be the man of lawlessness. He will be the final representative and perhaps even the embodiment of Satan himself. He will sit in God's temple and claim to be God and demand supreme worship. We are to know this. We are not to be ignorant regarding these things. This is the trigger. This event will trigger tribulation so severe that Jerusalem's and its surrounding inhabitants, they'll have to flee to the mountains to avoid the judgment of God. That there's that this, this triggers the judgments of God. And these are given much greater detail in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 unfolds three series of judgments from the throne of God on the earth. And all these judgments culminate with the final judgment. This is the trigger. 
The abomination of desolation triggers the great tribulation. In verses 15 through 18, we see the urgency that, that those in Jerusalem are to flee. Jerusalem will be hammered after this happens. Get out of there. That's the point of the passage. Alright? In the next verse, we see that this will be the worst thing to happen in human history. There will never be anything worse than this. That means that whatever it's talking about here is going to be worse than Genesis chapter 7 when God flooded the earth and He killed everybody in the world except for eight people. It will be the worst thing to ever happen. And it's triggered by the abomination of desolation. These judgments will, be, will cause unrivaled terror and suffering on the earth. And it will culminate in the final judgment. Don't be ignorant regarding the abomination of desolation. Lesson number five for the last days. Don't be ignorant regarding the return of Jesus Christ. And we see this in verses 24 through verse 27. I'm going to read this again because I like it. It says, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Think about this. Verse 24 and 25. It just told you that the lights are going to go out in the entire universe. That the lights are going to stop shining prior to His coming. The universe is basically going to convulse before the coming of Christ. Cosmic upheaval and supernatural signs will precede the second coming of Jesus. And all the earth will feel the vibrations of this. The coming of Jesus, it will not be in secret. Every eye will see Him. They will see the Son of Man, even those who pierced Him. And they will mourn because of Him. This is not a secret coming. This, he's coming and not, in, not in a donkey, not in a manger. He's coming with great power and glory. Imagine this. Imagine this. What announces His coming is that the lights in the universe go out. You think about, you think about that. Think about that. Somebody comes over to my house for dinner, they might get Ethan running out in the driveway saying, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's here. Think about, even in Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a messenger that ran ahead of him, John the Baptist, and he was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. He's here. He's coming. When he comes back this time, the entire universe will bow down at his arrival. Lights going out, stars falling from the heavens, great power and glory. Introduced by a darkening universe and then a loud trumpet call. And then He descends on a glory cloud to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth to the four corners of heaven. And so what we have here is a contrast. The great tribulation will be unparalleled suffering, but it is going to be eclipsed by the appearing of, of Christ in matchless glory. There will be none like this. None like this. This is what the Scriptures refer to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day above all days. The day where He returns. The day where He sets all things right. It will be a manifestation of power and glory. All the other apocalyptic events that you read about in the entire Word of God, whether it be the flood of Noah or, the, or, or creation itself, or go read the book of Revelation, 
where massive worldwide things are happening, wars, massive wars, massive plagues, nothing compares to this. These are trifles. Trifles compared to when Jesus rips the sky wide open and He comes back in glory. Nothing compares to this, this moment. You can't even explain it in words. It's matchless glory, matchless power. I want you to imagine the power of five million atomic bombs just blowing up at one time. He's coming like that. He's coming in great power and glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 say that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. In flaming fire. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 refers to the splendor of His coming. The splendor of His coming. I want you to think about this. Think about you're in a dark room and you got a little birthday candle in front of you and you light that thing up. And that little birthday candle will give light in most, a normal size room. It will light it up. And then if you've ever gone hunting before, or you know what this is, a Q-beam. Anybody know what a Q-beam is? Okay, One million candle watt flashlight that you shine across a pasture and it lights up the whole thing like it's daylight. Alright? So I want you to imagine standing in your bedroom and you're looking at a candle, a little birthday candle, and then you turn that Q-beam and look straight in your face and you hit the trigger. You think you're going to be able to see the candle anymore? You're going to be blinded by the brilliance of that light. And I think this is exactly the picture we get. That the lights go out because He comes in with unthinkable splendor, with the brightness of His power, with flaming fire. And the sun is like a little bitty candle to a Q-beam beside this Christ. Great power and great glory. He's coming with so much power that all the world will know that He came. They will see Him. How loud does a trumpet blast have to be for everybody on planet earth to hear it? Great power and great glory. It is a distinctly Christian conviction and our blessed hope that human history is headed towards this. It's headed towards this consummation. And Revelation chapter 22 verse 12 tells us exactly why He's coming back. 22.12, Revelation 22.12, listen to this. This is why He's coming back. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. You ever thought about that? Why is he coming? Wow, this matchless power. And he just told you that he's coming back to repay each one for what he's done. Listen to 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. One more, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so know this, that Jesus is coming back to repay each one for what He's done. And this happens in two ways. He repays in two ways. And this is clear from cover to cover in Scripture. The first is this. He is coming back and He will return in great power and great glory to pour out wrath on every unbeliever. 
on every unbeliever, those who have not trusted Jesus, those who have not obeyed His gospel, He's coming back to pour out wrath. Listen to Jude 1, verses 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Everyone who is outside of Jesus when He returns will experience unquenchable eternal agony. And this will be just punishment for their sins. This is not unfair. He's repaying them what they deserve, what they have earned. He's coming back to judge. This is true from Genesis to Revelation. Don't be deceived by this. He's busting the sky wide open and one of the things that is going to happen is He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge every unbeliever. But He also is coming back in our passage to gather His elect from the four corners of the earth to the four corners of heaven. And this tells us that there's some good news when Christ returns. He is coming in a righteous judgment, but He's also coming and He's bringing salvation to His church, to those that, who have believed the Gospel, to those who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Colossians 3, verse 4, When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now the difference in those two groups are not that one of them are sinners and the other are not sinners. That is not the difference in those two groups. The Bible teaches that every human being on the planet has sinned and offended God. The difference is the response to the Gospel of Jesus. The righteous have not, the wicked have not believed the Gospel, but the righteous, the ones that are being saved, the ones that are being gathered to Christ, these are the ones that have believed the glorious Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel that brings eternal salvation. They will experience limitless eternal joy in the presence of King Jesus forever. They will behold the face of this glorious Christ. He's coming back to judge and He's coming back to save. This is clear in the Word of God. This is a fearful day for the lost, but a glorious day for the Christian. And we long for this day. The cry of our hearts is, Come Lord Jesus, we, to live as Christ but to die as gain. We want to be with our Lord. This is our cry. This world is not our home. We want to be with Christ. Don't care how much you love your wife. Don't care how much you love your kids. You are to long for this day like nothing else. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. So this is the sign. There's going to be a trigger. And this is going to trigger tribulation. And then following this tribulation, He's going to bust the sky wide open and He's going to come back. He's returning to the earth. And then let's, let's press into the question. They asked them another question. They said, when? When's it going to happen? That's the sign, but when is this going to happen? And in the following verses, Jesus is about to address the question of when. When? Verse 28-31 through says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Lesson number six for the last days is learn the lesson regarding the final generation. This is actually commanded here. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Learn the lesson of the final generation. Verses 28 through 31. So here it is. Jesus gives us a very simple illustration about fig leaves in summer. And the illustration, it is this simple. When you see the fig leaves, know that summer is near. Alright, that's the illustration. And then He walks it into, when you see these things, what are those? Everything that we've been talking about. Okay, The signs of the present age, and then the abomination of desolation. When you see these things, know that Jesus is near, even at the door. Okay, That's the illustration. And then in verse 30, Jesus tells us that these things will happen within a generation. There's a little bit of confusion about this, but Jesus is talking about the final generation. He's not talking about these disciples. Jesus did not blow His second coming. He did not tell them that He was coming back, and then He was wrong. This didn't happen. He's not talking about that generation. He's talking about the final generation. Alright, so let's, let's talk about this for just a second regarding this fig tree. Try to follow me here. The one who sees the leaves is the same one that will see the summer. Alright? Do you see the leaves? You're going to see the summer. It's right there. It's near. This means that the generation that sees the signs is going to see the Lord. The generation that sees the leaves is going to see the summer. The generation that sees the trigger, that sees the signs, is going to see the Lord. There will be the generation to see the return of Christ. And what this means is that this generation will see the beginning and the end of these things. Okay? The same generation that sees the signs will see the Lord. The coming of Christ is going to come like rapid fire on the final generation. Okay, Once the trigger erupts, His coming is soon. The same generation that sees the signs is to know that the King is near even within a generation. Okay, This is the lesson of the fig tree. You can be sure of this according to verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but that will never pass away according to Jesus. The generation that sees the trigger, that sees the signs, will be the generation that sees the return of Christ. We see that this will happen within a generation. But that is as much information as Jesus gives you as far as when. So the next question is, well, that's helpful. Like, well, when's that generation? You know? And it helps you none. Okay? And it helps you none. This is not about date setting. Okay? It's not. There's no date setting as we approach this passage. Alright, let's read. Uh, verses 32 to 37. This is what he gives us regarding the timing. He says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Alright, got some disappointing news maybe for some of you. The day of the second coming of Christ, it is not God's will for you to know that. It's not. 
You don't have to spend 30 seconds of your life on this planet trying to figure out the date when He will return. It has been purposefully withheld from us. And let these words just sink in. No one knows. He really did say that. No one knows. No one knows. No one knows when He's coming. Now, I have no idea how this gets connected, but there is a string of false churches and false teachers in church history I guess they just decided that they were like the one ex- ex- exception to that. That no one knows except me. Okay, So there have been many examples of this where people just swing and miss. All right? Nobody, uh, Danny Aiken says, nobody more than the Jehovah's Witnesses. Nine times publicly, nine times that false church that preaches a false gospel, that preaches a false Jesus. Nine times they said Jesus is coming back in this year. Strike one, strike two, strike three, strike nine. Struck out nine times. Okay, Mormons also publicly predicted the date, the date of Jesus' return. Seventh-day Adventists have also done this. All right. Even in our generation, uh, Harold Camping two years ago, uh, Jesus is coming back on this day. Oh, this is wrong match. I mean, He's coming back on this day. Strike one, strike two. No one knows when He's coming back. And when somebody sets a date for that, that is a dead giveaway of a false teacher and a false church. Dead giveaway. No one knows. And then listen to some of the language. Not even the sun. Not even the sun. Imagine the arrogance when you, you got some prophecy teachers like, the sun doesn't know, but I know. Come on. Uh, not even the sun. Not even the sun knows. Only the Father. Now to camp out on this phrase. Not even the sun knows. Like your Jesus doesn't know everything. This is where you have to know what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of Jesus. And what we affirm, what every Christian affirms, is that Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and He's fully man. He has 100% human nature and 100% divine nature. And you can't play games with the Gospel like that. You have to know what it says about Him. He is God and He is man. And so we get glimpses in the Gospels where, where He manifests one of those natures. And I'll give you a few examples. And his early ministry in Galilee, he's healing people, preaching the gospel in a house, and all of a sudden this hole opens up in the roof, and this paralytic man starts to come down right in front of Christ. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Sons, your sins are forgiven. My question to you is this, is that evidence of the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Christ? He just forgave a man's sins. And we say that's evidence of the divinity of Christ. He's God. Look at what he's doing. He's God. Then fast forward in the Gospel, even in the Gospel of Mark, and there's a story about a megastorm on the Sea of Galilee. Alright, and the storm is raging. And you have Jesus Christ, and He is asleep in the boat. So my question for you is this, is this evidence, Jesus sleeping, of the humanity of Christ, or the divinity of Christ? And we say, this is the humanity of Christ. God doesn't sleep. He's the God-man. He's asleep. He's taken on our entire human nature. He's really man. But then, here's what the Gospels do. The very next verse, the very next verse, Jesus stands up, opens His mouth, and gives creation a command. And the waves of that megastorm go to a sheet of glass. And we say, what is He now? Is He God or is He man? Do you see that? Side by side, He's the God-man. Same thing in this passage. The Son doesn't know, only the Father. Is that evidence of His humanity or His divinity? This is not hard. This is not a hard question. This is the evidence in Jesus showing you that He has a full human nature. Jesus had to live by faith just like we do. Just like we do. Even towards the last things. Just like we do. God's timing 
will confound the wisdom of the wise. It will confound it. No one knows. That means if someone predicts a date, it automatically means that it's wrong. Automatically. Alright? No one knows. There has been a long delay. And that's true. And Jesus wanted to show His disciples that. That there's going to be some suffering. And we know in the present age that there's been a long delay. But these verses teach that there's going to be a sudden return. That this long delay is going to end with a sudden return. And we are to feel as disciples of Jesus in this present age, we are to feel the urgency of the return of Christ. Urgency. This is supposed. This is how, remember we talked about this is supposed to change how you live your life in this world. This is how it happens. You feel the urgency of going to be with Christ forever. Lesson number seven for the last days is stay awake. Stay awake. And you see this in verse 37. And Jesus said to His disciples, what I say to you, I say to all. That's pretty clear that He's talking to more than the first century church. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus, He says to His disciples, including us, stay awake. Entire church age, stay awake. So as we close, let these words, they need to arrest your attention. How do I need to respond? What do I need to think about about my life, Jesus? You need to stay awake. You need to wake up and you need to stay awake. These are the, this is the whole point of this entire chapter. And Jesus tells us this because He knows that we are tempted to sleep on the job as disciples of Jesus. So if there's any among us, even now, praise God for these words that Jesus wants to use His Word in your life to wake you up. You don't have to stay asleep. Wake up. Stay awake. So I want to wrap up our time with four specific applications under this heading. And I want to encourage you from this passage to respond to Christ personally in these four ways. And the first is this. Wake up to the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh man, you are blind to the glory of Christ if you think that He is boring. You are blind to the glory of Christ if you think that His gospel is boring. You are blind to the glory of Jesus if something about His second coming doesn't pierce the soul and make you want to crawl on your face and worship this Christ. You need to wake up to the glory of Christ. This, verse 33, we are commanded, be on guard, stay awake. That's the commandment. This means we're not to be sleepy. All the faculties of our being, our attention, our affections, they're to be awake and they're to be used in service to Christ. Wake up. This is the message. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Don't sleep like other people do. If you're around people that are asleep to Christ, don't be like them. Wake up. Wake up. This is the message. Romans 13, verse 11. The hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So in light of Mark 13, Olivet Discourse, the last thing, the summing up of all things, this means that you are to live for the One who's coming quickly. You are to live for Him. You are to live completely for Him. You are to wake up and live for Christ. And what this means is that when Jesus, you are supposed to live in such a way right now, in the following week, in the following month, you're supposed to live in such a way that when He rips the sky wide open, it makes sense. How you're living is supposed to make sense in light of that day. So I want to encourage some of you, prepare 
You hear all the time about preparing for your future. You need to prepare for college. You need to prepare for your vocation. You need to prepare for your marriage. You need to prepare for having children. You need to prepare for 10 million years from now. You need to live for Christ. He's the only thing that matters. And I want to speak directly to the lost here for a second. You need to wake up to the glory of Christ. These things are meant to place an urgency in you about the coming of Jesus. You need to be saved. You need to be saved. And I want to encourage you, prepare yourself for 10 million years from now that you will be somewhere. You need to be with Christ. And for that to happen, you need to be saved. And Leonard Ravenhill used to say this. He said, there's a, there's a thousand roads into hell, a million roads into hell, but only one out. And the only way for a sinner to ever be saved is to believe the gospel. And so maybe, maybe you've heard this so many times in your life that it's become dull and cold. But I will remind you that the only chance that you ever have for eternal life is a Savior on a bloody cross dying for your sins in your place, taking the righteous wrath of God for you as your substitute. This resurrected Jesus that was crucified for our sins, He commands you that you must repent of your sins. And you have to put your trust in Jesus or you will perish forever. This this is the gospel. This is the gospel. And this needs to hit you with urgency. And I thought about this. You think about this with me. You think about if you fail to respond over and over in your life, think about this in a million years from now. You think about how much regret that you will have for hearing and ignoring and hearing and ignoring and hearing the glories of Christ and the salvation of sinners and ignoring and not responding. And I got time and I'm bored with this. Can you imagine the regret in that day? When mercy and grace is cut off forever from you, and forever you'll replay the story, I didn't respond to Christ. He was crucified freely for sinners. I didn't repent of my sins. I had the call. I had the gospel call over and over and over again. And I was hard and I was numbed. Can you imagine the agony? Mental agony. Mental anguish. Over and over and over again. And so my encouragement to you is wake up to the glory of Christ. Wake up to the glory of Christ. You need to feel the urgency that you think you have. How many ever chances that you think you have, you might not. Wake up to the glory of Christ. Number two, pray often to Christ. Pray often to Christ. Wake up, pray often to Christ. This is a mark of a believer who is awake and not asleep. Some of your versions in verse 33 add the word pray on the end of the verse. That's where I'm getting this from. Watch and pray. And that's a good reminder here. Alright? Don't fall asleep in your prayer life. We should all be in close communion with Jesus when He rips the sky wide open. We're going to know Him because we spend daily time with Him. We speak with Him. We know Him. We're always increasing in the knowledge of Him. We're in close communion with Christ. I want you to think about this. Matthew's Gospel, verse uh, chapter 24 is the Olivet Discourse. And the first thing that happens... After Matthew's version is a parable in verse in chapter 25. And the parable is about ten virgins. Some have oil in the lamps, some don't. I think that's a parable of some walking in communion with Christ. Okay, And Jesus says to the ones who don't have oil in their lamps, He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You don't know me. You say you know me, but you don't know me. So I want to encourage you. You need to be in daily communion with this Christ that's coming soon. Wake up and pray often to Christ. Number three, work for Christ. 
This is the mark of a disciple who's awake, somebody who's working for Jesus. This is not an allergic word for Christians. We must work for Christ. We don't work for our salvation. But you know what saved people do? They're zealous for good works. They're saved unto good works. We are on mission with Jesus. This is our job. We're to work for Christ. Verse 34 tells us that each has been given work to do. Verse 34. Each has been given work to do. You have been assigned a task by the master of the house. You are a steward. Each one of us has work to do. Okay? And what it means is that when Jesus comes, we are to be fulfilling our duties that He has given us to do. Okay? So I'm encouraging you, wake up and work for Christ. Ask yourself this. Are you faithfully following Jesus or are you sleeping on the job? You know the answer to that question better than anybody else in this room. Are you sleeping towards the things that He has commanded you to do? And when He comes... Will you be considered a faithful servant? Or will you be considered a lazy servant of Jesus? Those who are awake, these, the soon coming of Christ hitting them rightly and causes them to wake up and work for Christ and fulfill what He's called them to do on this planet. Listen to 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Since all these things are to thus be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So my encouragement to you is that you would not waste your life and that you would not be ashamed when Jesus comes, that you would not waste your life, that you would use your life, that you would redeem the time, that you would be about the Master's business, that you would finish the work that He has entrusted to you. Each person has a personal responsibility to obey Jesus. Each and every one of us. Number four, long for the return of Christ. This might be the strongest mark of someone who's, a, who's awake to, to, to the last things, to, to someone who's awake to the urgency of the second coming. Here's what I mean by this. The prospect of the believer seeing Jesus, this should produce the highest joy in your soul. You mean I get to see Him? You mean I get to behold the Lord of glory? He's the prize. He's the treasure in the field. He is my exceedingly great reward. You mean I get to see Him? You mean when He comes, I get to go be with Him? This is the longing. Someone who's awake instead of someone who's in love with the things of this world. I want to be with Christ. Just like, them, just like Ignatius said, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. This is the posture of the soul. I want to ask you, are you longing for and eagerly waiting the return of Christ? Or are you in love with the things of this world? Or are you in love with the things of this world? Final two verses. Three. Hebrews chapter 10. This is a reminder for us all. We'll close with these verses. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and He will not delay. Let that hit you fresh today. That's how you need to think about the second coming of Jesus. Just a little while He's coming. He's not delaying. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who responds rightly to the Word of Jesus today. Blessed are you when He comes. Final verse. Revelation 22, verse 20. Jesus Christ says this. Surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Let's pray.
Lord, in all Your wisdom, Jesus, in Your perfect wisdom, You did ordain to teach us these lessons before You went to Your cross. And we as Your disciples, as Your church called by Your name, we just ask, Lord, that You would help us to understand them rightly. That You would help us to respond rightly to You, Lord. God, we pray that You would use Your words today and that the power of the Holy Spirit, You would drive them in us, God, and that You would, Lord. God, we just ask You for grace and mercy that You would awaken us from sleepiness, Lord. That You would drive it far from us. Wake us up, Lord, to Your glory. Wake us up to Your glory, Lord. And we pray, God, that You'd make us a people ready to meet You. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. We pray that You'd purify us, Lord in ways that we don't even know about right now. And God, I pray for the lost in this room. God, that You would convict them, Lord. That You would arrest their attention, God. That we pray that the urgency of the Spirit would fall, Lord. Thank You for Your words, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray.